and upset. Um, you know, it bothered me. Um, him having people killed in the Bible, uh, it bothered me. Um, and so I imagine that some of you are maybe in that place now. And that's, you know, that's going to be difficult because I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Uh, I'm not going to make excuses for God because he doesn't need any. Uh, there are no excuses to be made. He doesn't need them at all. Um, and that's difficult. That's difficult to handle. Um, so the only way tonight goes well is if you have an open heart. And if you let scripture speak uh, as to who God is uh, instead of what we want. Uh, that's the only way it's going to work. And so I'm going to jump through uh, a number of a number of passages in the Old Testament that I'm going to try and go through. Really tonight is just us looking at uh, wrathful God. Uh, so that's going to be fun. Um, we, uh, let, me, let me say two things before we get started. I think there's, so the first thing I want to say is that I think that you know, we bump up against this wrathful God, this God of the Old Testament, uh, because we constantly uh, preach and teach and sing about a God who loves us and cares about us. Uh, Jesus died for our sins, uh, and that's all true. That's all true, every bit of it. Uh, uh, but we leave out this whole other side of who God is. Um, we constantly focus on uh, the things that we like about God that are, that are true about God and we enjoy and we leave out this other side. And so for many of us, it's a topic that we've never even tackled at all or ever looked at. And then you open the Old Testament and you're like, what? I'm gonna go back to John. You know, you just go right back to, to what you know and what you like. And I, I don't blame you. Um, I really don't. It's difficult to understand some of that. It's difficult to, to comprehend, especially when all we speak about is love. And if you've, if you've ever shared the gospel with anybody, you've probably talked a lot about his love and his grace. And hopefully you mentioned repentance. Um, and repentance is something that like this group I think is good about it. If you've ever heard me preach here before, I've yelled at you to repent. Um, I have. And that's, that's something that we, we do here, but we normally don't talk about the wrath of God, the anger of God. Um, so I think, I think yeah, we, we focus on what we like about God, and we kind of mold this God that loves us and cares about us, and we enjoy that. We ask him for things. He gives us things. Um, and I think, that's, I think that's something we're going to have to push through uh, that God is more than just the things we like. He has more to his character, more attributes than just love. Um, uh, the second thing I think that's an issue that we need, to, we need to work through is our high view of man and our low view of God. And not that we view God as like lower than, you know, than, than man, but he's just not high enough. Like I'm reaching up here, it's as high as I can go. It should be way higher. And so we, we very much think a lot of man. Um, you know, when I was angry with God, I questioned him in, a, in an angry way, uh, in, a, in an accusatory fashion, like I put God on trial. And, and you know, there's a difference between seeking, between trying to find answers to questions, and then like being angry at God over things and demanding answers. Um, we come from a weird culture that has uh, that thinks it's very privileged and has a lot of rights. Uh, let, me, let me tell you a little story. So I, I used to, uh, I played soccer when I was a little kid uh, in this town when I was like five years old. And by the time I was 10, I started refing soccer. 
Um, and soccer is really funny in East Texas because nobody knows anything. Uh, I'm, I'm serious. Uh, you know, I started refing soccer, and you know, parents have no idea what offsides is. Um, this country is just now getting into like, into soccer, and this town, especially because of Clint Dempsey, um, it's it's really popular. And they'll, you know, parents will like holler and yell, and it's just an hour of them going, uh, "Kick the ball, kick it, kick it," and that's all they can say because <laughs> they don't know what else to say. Uh, and then they would yell. But so so soccer refereeing is different than American sports. Like American sports, baseball, people holler and curse at their umpire all day. <laughs> they do. And there's no repercussion. And you can't do that in soccer. I literally would send people off the field. I would say, bye. And they'd be like, well, I'm not going. I'm like, okay, I am, game's over. Um, but I'm serious, we did that. Um, by the time I was about 16, I actually became head of refs. I was a supervisor, and we've done that. We've sent entire sidelines of people to their cars, like, get out of here. You can't watch the game. You can't be quiet. You keep yelling at my refs. Um, and it can't happen. Um, and then I remember, actually, um, several FIFAs ago, before America got real good, they were starting to get good. People were starting to enjoy them. And we were playing Ghana, and, uh, and we lost. Surprise. And then uh, uh, there, was a, there was a questionable call, maybe a couple questionable calls. They didn't like, uh, we didn't like what the ref had done. And so the American media, the American press said, well, we want to talk to this guy. We want to know why he did that. He needs to answer us um, because that's what we do here. We, we question umpires and football refs, and they have to go before the media and professional sports and answer, well, I did this, you know, or it was a mistake or, or something like that. And if, if FIFA, soccer, just like what I was talking about here, the refs are like untouchable. They're, the FIFA was like, no, you can't interview them. And then the American media was like, what? We don't get to ask them what happened, why they did that? We don't like what they said. They have to answer us. They have to answer us. And uh, the media, our media had a field day over that. And FIFA said, no, you have no right to question the ref. None at all. And it was very difficult for our culture to go, what do you mean we can't demand answers? We have rights to that. Um, and so we come from a culture, I say all that to say, because we, we come from a culture that demands answers uh, as if we deserve them. Um, and I, again, there's, there's, there's something about questioning and seeking God and wanting to know him better and understand things better that's, that's, that's different than what I'm talking about. The way you demand answers, you can't do it. The way you put God on trial, like he's got to answer you and tell you why bad things happen or why bad people aren't punished or why something happened, like that's... That's not something he has to answer. He's God. And we, we, I get into that. I've gotten into that mindset because I've got a high view of man and a low view of God. So that's, I say all that um, because we have got to, to be open tonight. We've got to be willing to drop some of these things because um, I'm basically just going to read some scripture um, uh, and talk about it a little bit and I'm going to let the scripture speak for itself so that... You know, I'm not creating some other God, um, but I'm going to let Scripture speak for, for who he is. Because uh, that's what we're going to do tonight, is look and see his characteristics, who he really is. Uh, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for us real quick, okay? God, I ask that you would you'd be with us right now. Holy Spirit, would you let us be open uh, to your word? Well, we want to know who you are, God. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would make us open to 
to hear the truth. Um, Lord, I pray that we would worship you uh, and not a God that we, we make up, not a God that, the parts of God that we just like. Lord, I pray you would open our eyes to who you are fully and not just the parts that are awesome but the parts that are terrible. Lord, I pray you'd be with me, keep me from saying something uh, real foolish or protect me from that. Uh, be with us tonight. I pray if somebody's angry over even this subject, Lord, that you would give them peace. Lord, you'd be with them right now, giving them peace, letting them be, letting them be open to your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so the, the first passage we're gonna be at is in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter seven. You can go ahead and turn there. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Torah. Um, I'll give you a little background while you're turning there. So uh, the Torah is, or excuse me, the uh, Deuteronomy is second law is what that translates as. It's a second giving of the law where Moses uh, reiterates to a young generation of Jews who are about to enter the promised land um, laws, commands, uh, their history, what's happened to them, and he's just preaching to them is essentially what Deuteronomy is. Um, so these Jews have been... Uh, have just left Egypt. They've left Egypt uh, with a, a, a mighty hand of God. Uh, you know, there's the 10 plagues of Egypt. Uh, Egypt has been just decimated. Uh, they've gone through the wilderness and have gotten to the promised land. Uh, when they get there, they send out spies to, to, to what is now Israel. Um, and the spies come back and say, these people are huge. We can't fight them. They're, they're more than us, they're bigger than us. They've got iron chariots, we can't do it. And two of the guys, Joshua and Caleb, say, we can do this, God's with us. Uh, and everybody was very quick to forget that God had provided, that God had brought them out of Egypt uh, with a powerful hand, uh, and God said, said, no, this generation's not going to the promised land. Uh, and he basically condemns them to wander for 40 years until that whole generation who had said, no, we can't take the promised land, we can't do this. Uh, you know, God's not powerful enough, let's go back to Egypt. God says, all those people are gonna die. And then your children, who you said would die at the hands of these people, they will take the land. Um, and that's what's happened. So 40 years has passed and Moses is reiterating laws, rules, their history, their story. Uh, and what they're supposed to do. So at this point, they are preparing to go into the promised land, which is inhabited with uh, seven uh, really big nations. We're gonna, we're gonna re- be in verses, uh, verses one. So chapter seven, verse one, and we're just gonna read 10 verses. This is Moses speaking. Um, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, show no mercy to them, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn you away. They would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. 
then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for this treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him to his face. So that's, that's the, one of the passages we're gonna talk about. So instead of reading out of Joshua, this is the command that happens in Joshua when they invade the promised land and begin to wipe out almost all of, all of that, whole, that whole region. Um, if, you, uh, if you were here this morning, or even last week, you heard Terrell mention uh, uh, Asherim which is which was mentioned here he says that um the basically the you know you need to tear here he says you need to tear their ashram down these trees or these wooden poles where they worship down um tear them down uh because uh the canaanites and the amorites these people would uh would worship there they would worship asheroth was the goddess's name uh and they would have sex with prostitutes there uh, uh prostitutes who would uh, basically be like substitutes for the goddess, like they were having sex with the god. Uh, and then they would also sacrifice their children there. Um, and they would actually, uh, something else the Canaanites do, they would sacrifice their children and whenever they were building a house or a wall, they would actually put them into the wall uh, and build the wall with a, a child, like dead child inside as a way to like dedicate and preserve uh, their new building. Uh, so these are not nice people. These are not kind people, these are evil people. Um, very harsh people, uh, and, and they, can't, they can't live any longer. Um, and they can't live, so why, why has this happened? And God it says, God says because they'll turn you. They'll turn you away. And if you remember what Terrell said last week, he's speaking from a point of view of the Israelites doing this, because they do. They don't do this. This command to wipe everyone out, they don't do it. They get close, and there are many tribes left throughout all of Israel, and then they, they just kind of stop. They just, they stop, they kind of give up on it. And that's exactly what happens, is they turn to these gods, and the Israelites start sacrificing their children uh, at the ashram. Um, and God is quite appalled at it. And so the whole reason, one of the reasons this is happening is to defend his people. Um, you should know uh, that uh, these seven tribes are different. 
these seven tribes are condemned. There is a whole other law or ordinance for other nations. Other nations are allowed to assimilate in. There are laws and rules for them to come and be a part of Israel, worship in Israel. Um, but these are not. These are different. Um, this is uh, what you would call holy warfare. Um, it is from God, directly from God. Um, it's not just a, oh yeah, go get them. It is, it is an order from God. Um, and it's, it's unnatural, the warfare is. If you've heard of the city of Jericho, it's one of the first cities when they invade that they take down. And they take it down by marching around it for seven days and then everything just falls. And then they go in and they kill everybody. Uh, they kill everybody actually but Rahab, um, a prostitute who, who hid spies there and believed in God and had faith in God. And so we can even see God still preserving people. They, uh, she helped these spies out to get out over the wall uh, and they said, your house will stay. Everyone who stays in your house will live. Um, so even the first city that they decimate uh, in a supernatural way, God still preserves someone who believes in him who's not Jewish. Um, but this is holy warfare. Uh, this is very different. Um, this is an annihilation from God. Um, and people take offense at it because um, it's, it's genocide is what you would call it. We would label it geno- genocide. We would. Um, and it is. And I, I want to I try and compare it to other times in Scripture. So if you read the flood, uh, sin has gotten so bad, people have gotten so evil that God floods the whole earth and kills everyone. And this is, this is another example of him doing that. Things have gotten so evil in this area that he has to kill everyone. He has to. And then in the New Testament, it's the same. And you know, we think that we don't see a wrathful, angry God in the, Old, in the New Testament, but we do. One of the things you guys voted, I think you guys voted for the most, was Revelation. And in Revelation, Jesus comes back. And when Jesus comes back, he's on a white horse in a white robe, and he's got a sword, and his robe is dipped in blood uh, from his enemies. Because it's not going to be a flood that kills everybody. It's not going to be... It's not going to be the, you know, the Israelite army killing a, a small section in the Middle East. It's going to be Jesus coming back to bring justice when he comes back. Uh, that's what he's going to do. Um, so so it, is, it is in the New Testament. Um, so that, that is what this is. This is God uh, purging this land um, so that it can be used, so that it can be a light to the world. But these people are, are done for. Let me take you... Uh, somewhere else. Let me take you to Genesis chapter, chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. So Abraham, the father, the father of the Jewish people, uh, there's you know, famous promises made to him uh, that God will make a great nation of him, that God will bless uh, the peoples of the earth through him. Um, and here's another promise for him. I want to I want to read. This is God speaking. Uh, Genesis chapter 15, verses 13. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions 
As for you, you shall go down to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Uh, I want to talk about that, that last phrase particularly. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete and that's one of the seven tribes and it's, uh, I believe it's a representation of the entire region. So God is speaking to Abraham 500 years before Joshua leads the army in and says, and says this is an evil people, but their iniquity is not yet complete. And so God recognizes that this land is filled with evil people, evil people. And his response is to wait. His response is to have mercy. That is what he's done. If you have ever asked yourself, why, you know, why does... You know, why do evil things happen? Why do people get away with that? It's because God's merciful and he gives them a chance. And I'm one of those people. I'm one of those people who's been evil and been given a chance, been given time. The reason that Jesus hasn't come back yet is because God is merciful. It's the same. It's the same thing. Every moment that passes is a chance for someone to repent, a chance for someone to believe, a chance for us to share the gospel, Every moment that passes, God is merciful. He is giving a people a chance, us, to repent, us, to change. It's the same thing. This is just a smaller version. This is one area versus the whole world. But it's the same story. It's the same thing. We're given a chance to repent. We're given more time. And it's a bit ironic. We see people sacrificing children. God acknowledges it and then says, oh, wait. Give them more time. And then when it's, when it's complete, when it's just too much, then I'll destroy them. And that's what eventually happens. And so we say, why does evil happen? And then it's because God's merciful. And then when he does kill them, we say, well, why did you do that? Either way, when we argue against God, he doesn't really win, does he? Because he's either too merciful or too wrathful. So he's been kind to these people and then destroys them. And either way, we get upset. Let me look at, um, when we look at the heart of God and how God feels about sin, this sin being committed, uh, we're, let, me, let me show you. We're going to be, go to Genesis 4. Go to Genesis 4. This is Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel are the first children of Adam and Eve. And Cain is quite jealous and upset with Abel. And God speaks to him. He says, uh, he says uh, in verse 7, uh, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So God knows that Cain is jealous. He's upset and he says, hey, sin is knocking at your door and you need to stand on top of it. You need to rule over it, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He kills his own brother. So the first murder in the history of of humans happens and God's response. Uh, verse 10, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So God's response when evil happens is what have you done? And many times we ask, why have you done this? Why have you let this happen? God's asking us the same thing. Why have you done this? Why have you let this happen? It's reverse, it's the complete reverse. We question God, why have you done this? When all along he's asking, why have you done this? He is upset and distraught. He didn't cause uh, 
Cain to do this. And Adam and Eve didn't go, why did this happen? God goes, why did it happen? Why did you do this? How could you do this? This blood is crying out to me. God is hurt and offended by these actions. He is not happy with it. And you can see by his response that you need to stand on top of this sin that the responsibility is on Cain not to commit evil, not God. The blame goes to Cain. And what does he do? What does God do? He's merciful. He's still merciful to him. He lets him live. First murder ever, and he lets him live. God is merciful. It's part of who he is. It's very true. It is a part of his core being. Hold on, I got too many notes. So we, we question God. We say, why have you let this happen? Why have you let this happen? And he is asking us, no, you tell me. You tell me. And there's a day where we'll have to answer for that. We will. We'll be before God. There's, uh, lately I've actually seen several, several prominent atheists who, uh, who went on kind of a rant about how if they got to see God, they would tell him off and they would say, how dare you do this? How could you do that? And that's not going to happen. There's not going to be an opportunity to tell God off. On that day of judgment where we are all there and he separates the sheep to his right and the goats to his left. The sheep are the good ones, by the way. You want to be on the right. We're not going to question him. We're not going to ask him, why did you do this? You won't have a chance. You'll be afraid. You'll be fearful. You will be. And it's a key part of how we're supposed to act towards God. Um, the Bible says again and again that we are to fear God. And you know, I, I don't mean to be uh, disrespectful, um, but you, I, I hear this. When people say, well, really that just means to, to, you know, you need to really respect God is what that means. You're wrong. It doesn't. Whoever's saying that doesn't know what they're talking about. It means fear. It doesn't mean something else in the Hebrew or the Greek. In the English, it means fear. You're supposed to fear God. We are. And it's, it's tough. It's tough to know, you know what that means to, to fear God because it's like, well, I thought God loved me. Why would he want me to be afraid of him? And I understand that question. And it's difficult. And I feel like most of us don't have a good answer for that or a good perspective for that. Um, I feel like, I feel like um, I'm maybe one of the few people who does, and not because I'm special, but because I have an awesome dad. Um, if you've heard my story, um, like I used to do drugs, used to be a drug dealer. Um, uh, so the, the first thought is like, oh, he's got like a messed up family, like he's got dad issues, maybe his dad hit him, maybe he didn't have a dad, maybe he had some problem, and it wasn't that way. My parents are awesome. They're so nice. I messed myself up all on my own. They didn't have to do it for me. Um, you know, one of the distinct memories I have uh, of my dad is him, is, is me having this fear of him and this love for him um, that is the only way I can describe how it's supposed to be, how we're supposed to be afraid. I remember um, dad came home and my brother and I were throwing, we were throwing the football 
in the hallway. Um, we've got a perfectly good front yard and backyard, and I don't know what we're doing. He gets a little upset. He's like, what are you doing, throwing that ball? No, don't throw that ball. You're going to break something. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm a bit, I'm afraid of my dad, but I love my dad. Okay. And then dad, like, he goes to his bedroom. He goes somewhere. And I'm like, let's throw the ball again. Um, so we do. So David, my brother, and I, we just start throwing the ball, and then I throw it. Again, we still got a good front yard, a good backyard. I'm in the hallway. I throw this, and I crush uh, a picture frame. I throw it too high. My brother threw a little. Um, and then I, th- I throw it too high, and I, I break this frame, um, this glass picture frame, and my dad comes out. He's, he's, he's upset, um, and I'm afraid. I'm afraid of my dad. And he's like, and he's like, go to your room, which is the worst thing ever. Because my, my dad spanked me. Um, you know, don't call the police, but he spanked me. Um, and he wouldn't. He sent me in that room, and it was the worst. And he, I, he, I'd be in there like 20 minutes, which felt like 400,000 years. And I'd be waiting, and I know it's coming. I'm going to get whipped. I'm going to get spanked. And I just, I'm like, oh my God. And I'm so afraid of my dad, but I know I've been in the wrong. And you know what my dad was actually doing uh, for that 20, 15, 20 minutes? He was waiting. Something he told me uh, time and again uh, when he did spank me and when I was a young man was to never hit your kids when you're angry. I never whip your kids when you're angry. And I really liked that. And that's what he would do. He would go, he'd sit in the couch in the living room. I'm in my room like, I'm gonna get hurt. And the dad's in there just like, oh my gosh, like trying to calm down. I just broke this picture frame, just deliberately disobeyed my father. And he's upset he's just waiting. In 20 minutes, 15 minutes, how long it takes passes. He comes in, and we talk about it, and I'm the entire time. And then he, and then he spanks me. He whips me. Um, you know, not profusely, just, he whips me, I don't know. Sometimes it was like two or three times, and maybe it was just one, and I'm crying. And I remember this one, because this is the last time he ever did it, and I was maybe only nine, 10 years old. And then he, he took me into the living room. It was just he and I at this point. Um, and we sit down, and he starts crying. Um, it hurt my dad to have to punish me. It did. It was like this a bizarre thing, because I'm done crying. When the spanking's over, I'm good. And I'm sitting here, and now my dad's crying. And he was so upset that he had to do what he had to do. He did not want to whip me. He took no pleasure in it. He was angry, calmed himself down, still had to do it. He had to. If he was going to be a good father, he was going to have to whip me. If he was going to be a bad father, he would let it go. He would let whatever happen. And I'm not saying you need to whip your kids, but I'm just saying that we need discipline, that I needed discipline. And that's my example of being afraid of my father and loving him and being punished by him and it being good and him not taking joy in it, and him not being like furious over it, but him being just. He was being just the entire time, and then he hated having to do it. He didn't want to whip me at all, at all. And I, you know, I, I hate to put my you know, personal perspective into some of this, but I, I feel it's the same way, and scripture says that God takes no joy in punishing. He doesn't. And I, I think it's the same way. But because he has to be just, he has to be righteous, he has to do this. He can't let it go away. 
500 years of child sacrifice? Come on. What, should he let it go another 500 years? I don't think so. He shouldn't have let it go on at all. He should have just killed him then, but he's merciful because that's the, the part that we love. That's a part of his core being. That's who he is. He's merciful as well. Let me take you to one last Old Testament passage. We're gonna go to uh, Exodus, Exodus 34. This is, uh, this is one of my favorite chapters. This is one of my favorite verses. This is probably one of the most holy moments uh, in the Torah. Um, Exodus 34. Let me, uh, let me give you some background. So we're back in Egypt. God has just decimated the Egyptians. He's destroyed their country nearly. He's brought the Israelites out. And this is in the very beginning. This is shortly after they've crossed the Red Sea on dry ground and it split. And then came back and crushed the Egyptian army. Um, Moses has gone up on a mountain to meet with God and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Um, He has no food and no water. It's a supernatural fast. You can go 40 days without food. You can't go 40 days without water. Uh, And he gives, he's speaking with God constantly. God gives him the Ten Commandments and he comes down with them. Um, The Israelites, midway through this this fast of Moses, his meeting with God, uh, had decided, like, God's gone. Moses is gone, God's gone, what are we gonna do? And they decide to uh, make a golden calf. They start worshiping a false god. Moses comes down with the tablets and is like, what? And he crushes the tablets, uh, grinds it up and makes them drink it. Um, And God speaks with Moses and says, this is ridiculous, I'm gonna make a nation from you, I should just kill them. Um, And he doesn't, he decides not to. And Moses pleads for the people and pleads with God. And God says, okay, you want to know who I really am? Come up to this mountain again. And it's different this time. It's very different. He comes up to the mountain and God, God uh, hides him in the cleft of a rock with his hand. God actually comes down this time to meet him in person. Um, and this has never happened, ever, or will, will again. He comes down and literally puts his hand over a, a part of the rock because he can't look at God's face or he'll die. And so God has his back to him, um, and he has him covered. And he says, you want to know who I am? Are you ready to make a covenant with me? Can we continue past this? And then... When he comes across the the rock where Moses is, he says this. He tells Moses his name. And so up until this point, we know that uh, God calls himself the I am, Yahweh. The I am, the one who is. And then he says this. This is an expansion of his name. There's a lot of power in names. This is his name. Exodus 34, verse six. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, which is Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful 
and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, or some of your translations might say to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That is God's name. That is his actual name. That is who he is. That is who he is, and it is both. It is both. You see his, uh, he, he describes himself as both merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, and then not clearing the guilty. He's both. It is both. And you know where that meets? Is most definitely on the cross. Most definitely. There is all this love for us and all this wrath for us and it meets there. Someone has to pay. Someone has to pay. They must. There's no way. And how can he reconcile these two sides of who he is? And we, I split them into two. There's so much more than that. How can he bring those together? And it is done on the cross. All his wrath is poured out on Jesus so that we can have all his mercy. And keep something else in mind. Messiah means sent one. Jesus is the Messiah. So he is sent. He's sent by God. The same God who just had all those people killed, had the flood happen, is the same one who sent Jesus in the first place. The night that Jesus is betrayed, he's praying to the Father and says, is there any other way we can do this? And he says, no. God, the Father says, no. There's no other way. This is the Father's idea. This grace and mercy that we receive, it's the Father's idea. It's his plan. And the Son, God the Son, Jesus, plays his role, which is to be the obedient servant that he is unto death. That is what he does. That is what he does. And so the Father has sent Jesus. The Father has. Back to uh, one last thing. Back to that, that vision of being at the judgment where we fear God, fear God more than ever, properly because we're in front of him and he's about to judge everyone. There's a whole other side to that the realization of forgiveness. There's a, uh, there's a story where Jesus goes to a Pharisee's house for, for lunch, and while he's at lunch, a prostitute comes in and bows down at his feet and starts uh, weeping, wiping his hair, or her, her hair on his feet, kissing his feet, and uh, the Pharisees are like, if you knew who this woman was, he wouldn't let her touch you. And then Jesus, says something funny. He says, a master decides to declare all his debts forgiven. Some 50, some 1,000. Who do you think is gonna love him more? The one who got 50 forgiven or 1,000? And the Pharisee said, well, 1,000. And he said, he who is forgiven little, loves little. And this woman has been forgiven an immense amount and loves him greatly. Pharisee's been forgiven very little and doesn't really care. And the inverse is true. He who is forgiven little 
loves little, at that moment when he separates those who are his under the blood of Jesus to the right, our love will be complete. You will not have realized how much sin has been forgiven. You will love so much because of everything that is forgiven. Everything. It's so much. You are forgiven much and you will love much. And so that fear of being in front of him and that incredible love that will be complete will be there at the same time. It'll be there at that moment. That's what I have for you. And I know that it's a bit, a bit maybe a bit much. Talking about a wrathful God. And I, I don't mean to offend anybody. I just mean to speak the truth of who God is. Keep in mind, Exodus 34 right there. Those verses, that is who God is. He is both. He is both. Let that be true, because it is, and there's no other way. You can't ignore, you can't just worship one side, you can't just enjoy one side, you can't just even tell people about one side. There's more to God than just mercy. He has, he has wrath. But he is good, and he sent Jesus because of how much he loves, and because the wrath had to be, someone had to pay for it.